doing? All right. Well, as Pastor Scott said, we're going to be continuing our series today. But before we do that, I want to make an announcement for um, Celebrate Recovery. If you've ever thought about checking out Celebrate Recovery, this would be a great week to do that. Uh, Celebrate Recovery is a ministry that's meant to come alongside you and help you win in your life. And so if you uh, need some encouragement and some help in those ways, we'd love for you to check it out. Randy Springs is going to be sharing his story for the very first time publicly. You can uh, hear his story on Thursday at 7 p.m. at our church office. And so we'd love for you uh, to take uh, that time and go hear from him, encourage him. But I promise you that you'll be encouraged uh, by the people there and the ministry that's taking place. And so if you've ever thought about it, this is the week uh, to come check it out. Well, today we're going to pursue the questions that we've asked as a church body about what does the Bible have to say about some tough things. And we've looked at a variety of topics, right? We spent two weeks on uh, why does God allow suffering? Uh, we spent a week last week on um, talking about our battles with sin and why do we have these battles? Why do we keep running back to the same sin over and over and over again? Uh, we're going to be talking about God and science at some point. I won't be giving that talk, but Pastor Jed is going to be giving that talk. And so I know you'll be greatly encouraged by that. Uh, we're going to be talking about marriage. We're going to be uh, talking about what does the Bible say about homosexuality. And so there's a lot of different topics that are going to be coming up. And so we would encourage you to keep coming back and uh, taking in what God is doing here and what, the, and what the Word of God has to say. Well, today we're going to talk about um, a very specific question, which sometimes seems um, simple in its form. But the question is this, why does God love us? It was also asked this way, how could God love us? And so today we're going to talk about the greatest love. And when I talk about that title, that word is, the, the word great and the word love are, are ultimately subjective words in our, in our culture, aren't they? I mean, I can say uh, the game was great. I can say the food was great. I can say the company was great. And you can think about all these things in your life that you ultimately uh, describe as great. And we could kind of take a poll of what do you think is the greatest restaurant in Raleigh? And the truth is based on your preference of the kind of food that you like is going to determine what you think is the greatest, right? So we're going to have probably hundreds of restaurants mentioned. You could talk about what is the greatest college basketball team in the area. And some of you are going to say that uh, the Duke Blue Devils are the greatest. Any of you in here? Okay, there's one. Okay. All right. All right. Some of you are going to say UNC is your team, right? They're the greatest, right? Um, some of you may say NC State. I'm still trying to figure out if they have a basketball team there or not. Do they have a basketball team there? No. Okay. Um, I'm from Michigan, and I picked NC State as my local team, so um, I'm starting to work on this, I guess. Whatever that is supposed to be, but I'm trying to figure it out, okay? Um, but we can talk about the word great, and it's a subjective word in our culture. And the truth is the same is for the word love. Isn't it interesting that I can say that I love God, I love my wife, and I love my dog all in the same sentence? See, we have a dog. Any of you dog lovers here? All right. We have a dog. His name is Brinkley. All right. He is an uh, eight-year-old golden retriever. And uh, he is, still has a lot of his puppy features. His face is all white. And he's getting old. But uh, Steph would tell you that he's our baby. I would just tell you that he's a big 100-pound wuss. He's a big pushover and uh, really is just a baby at all sorts of the word. But, um, but my brother Jason, right, who's the shepherding pastor here, we could bring him up and we could ask Jason what he thinks about Brinkley. Now, Jason doesn't like Brinkley. He just doesn't think dogs are great. He has zero love for dogs. And uh, he shared that with you many times before. In fact, one time he came to visit us when, uh, 
we were living in Michigan and Brinkley was 10 weeks old, a 10-week-old golden retriever, right? Like the sweetest looking puppies kind of on the planet at that time. And Jason was sitting on the couch and Brinkley kind of came out trotting to, to meet him and he put his paws up on the couch. Well, Brinkley couldn't jump on the couch yet. He wasn't quite big enough, but he put his paws on the couch next to Jason and Jason did this, turned away, climbed up in the corner of the couch and he's like, nope, 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 nope. Just kept saying, get it, like, get away from me, right? And that hasn't changed, right? When he says he wants nothing to do with dogs, he really means it, all right? He really means it. Well, today we're asking the question, why does God love me? And if I'm gonna be honest, we ask this question because we look at what we have or haven't done and come to the conclusion based on our failures that there is literally no way that God could love us. Well, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, is kind of our key verse for the morning. Uh, it says this. It says that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And you can take this verse in one of two ways. For some of us, that greatly encourages us. But for others of us, it actually discourages us because we see, right, how in the world could God love me? Well, he knows everything, according to the verse. So that means he knows all my faults. He knows all my failures. He knows the good and the bad that I've done, all the choices I've made, all the thoughts that have come through my mind. And so it's like, man, this, this can't be good for me. And so God has enough information to make a decision on whether he should love us or not, doesn't he? And so for us, that is a discouraging thing, right? There's nothing you can do that will ever escape the Lord's sight. So how could God love someone like us? Well, our big idea for the morning is this, is that the love of God is greater than our brokenness. The love of God is greater than our brokenness. And so you're telling me, Josh, that God's love, even though he knows everything about me, all my faults, all my failures, is greater than my brokenness. And the answer is yes. And the truth is I'm not worried about what God knows because the Bible tells us, like in this verse, that he knows everything. But what I am worried about is that we might misunderstand our brokenness. That we need an accurate picture, an accurate view of our brokenness. And so we're going to start in the book of Jeremiah today. Um, you can stay in the book of 1 John if you've, already, if you've already turned there. But in Jeremiah chapter 17, we looked at this verse before, but it says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the word deceitful simply means that our heart lies to us. So above everything that's true in your life, let's be honest, right? Your heart is a liar. Your heart tries to deceive you into doing things that are going to glorify you over glorifying God. Now we also see that our hearts are not just deceitful, but they're desperately sick, which literally means that it is, my heart is incurable. It is rotten from the inside out. It is deeply, deeply wounded. And God says, who can understand it? And he goes on to say in verse 10 of Jeremiah 17 that I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Remember, he has all knowledge. But in Jeremiah chapter 30, we kind of get a little bit more in-depth picture at our brokenness. You see, the Lord is going to speak. And it's like he wants everyone to gather around, listen to what I'm about to say. This is really important for you to hear. And he says this in verse 13 of Jeremiah 30, that your hurt is incurable. Incurable. See, what God is doing in Jeremiah 30 is he's revealing the truth of who we are away from Jesus. 
And anytime that truth is revealed, I believe it should cut right to our heart. Wait a second, without Jesus, I'm incurable? Without Jesus, I'm, I'm a broken person? Ever had any truth revealed to you and it just kind of cut right to your heart before? Maybe it was a circumstance or um, something happened to a loved one. I remember when my wife Stephanie was in her seven-year battle with cancer. After her second bone marrow transplant, she was 18 months cancer-free. We went to the doctor's office to get a report to see uh, if the cancer was still gone. And the doctor came in and she said this. She says, the cancer's back. And I looked at the doctor and I said, listen, I'm a, I'm a black and white guy. I said, so what does that mean? I mean, there's no more blueprint for what the doctors would recommend. And she said this, I believe cancer's going to win. That cancer's going to take her life. And I want you to know that when she said that, it caught right to my heart, right? She was giving her medical opinion, the truth of what she believed. And it hurt. Now, I know that I serve a God who's greater than cancer. Do you agree with that? Right? And so that was years ago. And Steph's still here cancer-free, been over two years. Right? And so we're, we're excited about that. But we know that when hard truths are revealed, it cuts right to our heart. And it says this, that your heart, your hurt, is so deep, it is incurable. Meaning this, that there's nothing you can ever do that's going to change this problem. Why? Because incurable things or people cannot fix incurable people. Right? We're incapable of doing that. So do you get it? Do you understand what God is saying? He says that our wound is grievous, it says in verse 13. Right? That our sin is so severe and so serious that we need to have an accurate picture of it. He goes on to say in verse 13 that there is, in the middle of verse 13, there's no medicine for your wound and there's no healing for you. God is saying, listen, there's not a medicine that exists for the deep rottenness of your wounds. There's not a medicine that exists to cover your incurable heart. It's not here. It has not been created, nor will it ever be created. Why? Because our sin is serious. But he gives us even more, he says. He says in verse 14, in the middle of it, because your guilt is great, he says. So why is there no medicine? Why is my heart so hurt and so deep and so rotten? Because, because our guilt is great. Our guilt is incredibly great. And we like to say to God, hey God, listen, look at all these great things that we've done. All these great things that we've accomplished. My business is going great. Our family is great. We keep adding new people to our family. Right? We have all this stuff. Things are going really well for us. I've, I got my education out of the way. That's great. All these great things that we share, right? But God wants you to know what's great. And what he says is great is your guilt. See, what stands in front of him is your guilt. And that is great, he says. He says in verse 14, because your sins are flagrant, meaning they are offensive on the highest level to him. That there's no answer, human speaking, to our brokenness, that we are a broken people. But I want you to understand something, that we're not here just to talk about our brokenness. Right? We're not done with, our, with what God has for us this morning, because that's not encouraging at all. Because the reality is it's in our brokenness that you can find beauty, because that's where the gospel starts to get to work in our heart and in our lives, Correct? So we're going to be in the book of 1 John this morning, reviewing our key verse. 1 John 3.20 says that God is greater than our heart and he literally knows everything. And I want you to understand something. When God says that something is great, it is not subjective. 
right? It is not subjective. It is a true thing. So when God reveals the full truth of who we are, the greatness of our guilt, God is saying this, that I am greater than your guilt. I am greater than your shame. I am greater than your sin. You see, God wants us to know how offensive our sin is, but he also wants us to know that he is greater than the offense of our sin. So while we can't, the incurable cannot fix the incurable, God is greater than the incurable. Right? There's nothing outside of his hand or power that he cannot fix. But it's because of our brokenness that we ask questions like, how could God love me? How in the world is, is that even possible? Remember the big idea that the love of God is greater than our brokenness. We're going to be in 1 John seeing how God is greater. And we're going to pick it up in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, starting in verse 8. And it says this. It says, Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love, it says. If we would go to verse 7, it tells us that love is from God. So that means this, that love actually has a source. And so God is greater. His love is greater. Why? Because love comes from the greatest one in verse 8. Love comes from the greatest one. One And he has blessed us with this incredible gift. Well, what is love? Love is a choice to yield to the best interest of others. You see, at its simplest form, love means this. Love is you before me is the simplest form. Right? And God loves us with an incredible love. And we enjoy being loved by our loved ones, don't we? And don't we enjoy giving love at the same time? Yes, that's, that comes from the Lord. But what John is saying here, when he says that God is love in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he's not saying that God is only love. You see, love is an attribute of God, but God has many attributes. In fact, I would say that the love of God flows out of the fact that he is first and foremost a holy God. Right? It starts with his holiness. But love is in the nature of who our God is. Well, what do we need to know then about this great love? And one of the things I think we need to know is that his love is distinct, right? It is distinct. We think that God's love is like our love, but just on steroids. You see, my love can, God's love is never patterned after mine, but my love can be patterned after his. His love doesn't resemble the love that we show. Well, where do we get our understanding of love from? I would say Hollywood and Hallmark right? We watch movies. Maybe you like chick flicks or whatever it is that you're into. All right, I fell in love. I fell out of love. It is not something that you do. It is ultimately something that you feel. It is just kind of something that happens to you. Listen, love is a merited favor that comes from a choice. A choice, right? Not a feeling. So that means this, that God made a deliberate, intentional decision about us. It was a choice that he made. And the Bible gives many characteristics and descriptions of God's love. But in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2, we get a very specific description that fits great with what we're talking about this morning. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. You see, his love is great towards you. And so when you think about what is great in your life, and you think about your favorite restaurant, is, your, is the greatness of your favorite place to eat greater than God's love in your life? Is the greatness of your favorite team winning greater than God's love uh, in your life? 
Because none of the things that we think are great even begin to measure up to what the Bible means when it says that the love of God is great. You see, God is the master of understatements. And so love comes from, has a source, and the source is the greatest one. Well, in verse 9, we're going to see that love is demonstrated by the greatest act. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 9 says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, God's love is distinct, but it is also demonstrated and it is also displayed by a very specific act. And the reason that his love is distinct is because of how it is displayed. It, demonstra- it is demonstrated in a way that makes it distinct or unique. You see, love is a choice, remember, to yield to the best interests of others. Now look at verse 9 with me. We're going to see where was God's love manifested. It said in verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifested where? Among us, right? Among us, amongst the fact that we are a broken people, right? That we have incurable pain, right? We're deeply wounded. Our hearts are rotten. Amongst those people, the love of God was made manifest. Well, we see it in verse 9 through that fact that God sent his son, his only son. Listen, love is, love is to assign value, right? Love is to assign value, I'm a uh, big University of Michigan fan, which isn't really good these days for us. Um, But in 2010, Michigan plays football at the Big House, which holds 115,000 people. It's the largest stadium uh, in our country. And um, they put $226 million into renovations of the stadium. And what they did is they put club seats and box seats into their stadium. And you could buy a single club seat for $1,500 to $4,500 a year. It'd be a single seat for potentially six to seven home games, right? If you wanted a box seat, which would get you 16 seats at the big house, you had to give a minimum of a three-year commitment at $55,000 to $85,000 a year. In fact, things are so bad in Ann Arbor right now, they may, let you, they may give you $85,000 if you go, Okay. <laughs> Right? But the reality is people paid a lot of money. The Final Four in 2010, people paid $5,500 to attend it. The Super Bowl in 2010, $9,000 a ticket. Right? That's crazy talk, I would say. Right? But listen, the cost tells you the value. Something is worth what someone is willing to pay. Do you agree? Right? Something is worth what someone is willing to pay. The only way the cost is not true is if nobody pays for it. And here's the truth for me and you, is that our sin was expensive. The grace that we've received cost God his very best. And it is seen through the act that we're talking about of his son. And it is a priceless gift. And so here's the question to consider then. Uh, what are you worth? Because you are worth what someone is willing to pay. You are worth what someone is willing to pay. And we see this through the act of the greatest one. You see, in in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, but God demonstrated his love towards us and while we were still sinners, still broken, still guilty, still incurable hurt, Christ died. You see, according to God and him being the source of love, love involves something very specific and it is called sacrifice. 
right? Love involves sacrifice, that God made a deliberate choice in your hurt, right? God made a deliberate choice in your offensiveness and in the guilt of your sin to love you. You see, we need to understand how serious our sin is and how do we get an accurate picture of that? Listen, we need to look at the cross because it's at the cross that we see the seriousness of our sin and the seriousness of God's love for you, right? Those things are both clearly seen and clearly portrayed in his greatness at the cross, that God's love is distinct from ours. And so when we see the cross, we see that God had to fix our problem. Listen, our sin is infinite. What do I mean by that? Our sin is endless in size. It's impossible to measure. It's impossible to calculate. So our sin is infinite and it is against and it is, it is offensive against an infinite God. So our God is impossible to calculate. He's impossible to measure. So because we have an infinite sin that's impossible to measure against an infinite God who's impossible to measure, our sin then, as a default, deserves an infinite punishment. You see, the punishment that we deserve has to be on the same level as the sin committed because it's offensive and it's infinite in size and in magnitude. And as a result, my only hope is an infinite payment of hell if God does not demonstrate his incredible love through a sacrificial choice, right? He made a choice about us. And so Jesus is saying this, that you don't have to deal with this infinite payment anymore because I will take care of it for you. And the truth is some of you are hearing this gospel message about the act that Jesus Christ has made on your behalf for the millionth time and yet you've still failed to engage with this amazing message. Look at verse nine again with me. It says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, one of the challenges that we face in our culture and even in the church today is that we like to elevate the love of God, the attribute of love over every other attribute of who God is. Because when we do that, life gets ultra comfortable for us, doesn't it? I can do what I want. No one can tell me what to do because know what? God loves me. I'm going to go do what I want. I'm going to choose sin. I'm going to live to glorify myself over glorifying God. And the truth is God will love you. He will. Right, but why do we come to these conclusions? I want you to understand something. In verse 9, we see that God's love produces a very specific result in our life. Did you catch that in verse 9? In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, God's love produces a, produces a result, which is us responding to his gracious act of sacrificial choice and us choosing as a response to that and being motivated by that act to live a life through him. So it has a, it has a result. It has a response. And we're motivated by his incredible act. And I believe that the act that God has demonstrated for us should melt our heart and melt our pride and motivate us in our brokenness to live a life to demonstrate his incredible love. So love comes from the greatest one. Love is demonstrated and displayed by the greatest act. And we're going to see in verse 10 that love, the greatest one, provides the greatest outcome. Look at verse 10. It says, In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation 
of our sins. You see, I love what John is doing here because what John is doing, he's reminding us of the act that God is giving us and he's showing us the results of God's love. So don't miss it, right? In verse 10, in this love, so in the fact that the greatest one was sent with this distinct love, with a sacrificial choice for you was displayed by the greatest act that God sent his son to do what? It says in verse 10, to be our propitiation. Well, what does that word mean? That word doesn't show up too often in scripture. It's not a word, a theological word that we use too often. But the word propitiation simply means this. It's a wrath-removing sacrifice. A wrath-removing sacrifice. And so how do we, we need to unpack that more. Listen, in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is literally taking hell out of the equation and providing us with a different eternal outcome. Would we all agree that eternal life is better than eternal death? Yeah, it is, right? It is. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, maybe you've been there before. It's a pretty small place. He was praying to the Father. So we have, the, we have Jesus, the greatest one, praying to the Father. He's about to go die on the cross. And Jesus shows a lot of emotion. Luke tells us that blood is flowing from his face. It's the intensity of his prayers. And he says, Father, is Is there any other way that we can take this cup, that this cup may pass? He asked three times, is there any other way, Father, that this cup can pass? And he then comes to the conclusion, it's not my will, Father, but it is your will be done. And he gets up and he's arrested and he's on his way to Calvary. Well, what is this cup? I believe this cup is the wrath of God. That Jesus Christ, the greatest one, actually drank the cup of wrath that was deserved for me and you. And we see that on the cross as God dumped out his wrath on his own son. See, that's a gracious act. And grace is seen all over this text. We see his grace in the fact that God was, that Jesus was manifested among us, that he sent his son as grace, that we can live through him as grace, that Jesus is our propitiation is grace. And so grace is seen all throughout uh, this text. Have you ever had the chance to remove the wrath of God from somebody? The answer is no. We need the greatest one to do that. And so God's wrath is great in size and power, but God's love is also great in size and power. And it is at the cross that we see the love of God and the wrath of God collide. The beauty of the sacrificial choice of you and the justice wrath of a holy God all being pointed out and poured out at the same time. But I believe if we have an accurate view of hell, it'll help us embrace the beauty of God's love more clearly. Because of our sin, we've already established that we deserve the greatest, most infinite uh, punishment of all time, which is an eternity in hell. And the truth is, for some of you, you need to think about eternity this morning. I want you to know this, that people who go to heaven don't go to heaven because they're afraid of hell. They go to heaven because they're in love with Jesus. Right? And there's a difference there that is significant for us to embrace and for us to understand. So we must believe that hell is real and we must live our life based on the fact that hell is real and that Jesus Christ changes everything. You see, hell is gaining new citizens every single day. Every day, new citizens are experiencing hell. What do we need to know about hell? Well, I think the first thing we need to know is this, is that it's fiery torment. It's fiery 
torment. The Bible says that hell is like a lake of fire. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to think that the fire was on top of the water then. I don't necessarily think that's biblically accurate. I, I would say it's probably more fire from shore to shore. That everywhere in hell was literally on fire. And people ask the question, well, is the fire really literal? Well, in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 48, Jesus says this, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Giving context to the idea of this fire. That those who don't know Jesus are there and they're in pain, but they're never going to escape it. It's never going to be quenched. Flames are everywhere in hell, tormenting those who are there. Well, what else do we need to know about hell? Not only is it fiery torment, but we can see in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, we can see, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell as well. Right? And it's not suffering that's causing the weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it actually describes the hatred that, that those who are in hell have for those who are righteous. The hatred that they have for those who are not experiencing the same thing as they are experiencing. In fact, in the book of Luke, you see um, a, a picture of hell and that there's a rich man who dies and goes to hell and there's a poor man named Lazarus who dies and goes to heaven. The rich man Lazarus is talking I'm sorry, the, the rich man is talking to the poor man Lazarus who's in heaven. And he's saying, is there anything you can do to get rid of this pain? You see, he wants to be pain free. He wants the horribleness of what he's experiencing, the relief of pain to go away. But what he's not doing is he's not demonstrating remorse or repentance. He's not sorry for his choices. He's not sorry for the decisions that he's made in his life. You see, people in hell are not going to be repentant. They're not going to be wishing they were in heaven because I believe this, sin is going to be accelerating in hell. It's going to be moving at even a faster pace than it is now. Why? Because the grace of God is over. And the people in hell are getting exactly what they wanted. And so weeping is not necessarily going to be screaming, although I believe it's going to involve some of that. But weeping is going to be an utter despair of hopelessness. That those who are in hell realize that they are stuck there forever in this horrible place. Have you ever thought about forever? Have you thought about uh, eternity and how something will never change? And so hell is fiery torment, but hell is also weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we see in Matthew 25 again, verse 30, we see that there's uh, outer darkness. It says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness or utter darkness would be another way to, to describe it. Ever been in a place so dark that you can put your hand in front of your face and not see it? All right, that's the kind of darkness uh, that we're talking about. I also believe this, that it's isolation. I remember growing up when uh, the kids I were around, they would say, man, hell's going to be awesome. We're going to be living up. We're going to be partying. It's going to be a great time. I would argue, I don't know if anyone's going to be together in hell. I think people are going to be alone separated, isolated, in complete darkness, and we're going to be stuck there with our lives, with our thoughts, with our memories, and with our excuses. And so hell is fiery torment. Hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is, is utter darkness. Why? Because this is the punishment that our sin deserves because God is a holy and just God. Because we've offended him that we receive this punishment. And so the truth is, is that the, the reality for everyone in this room is that we're all going to live for an eternity somewhere. 
You see, everyone on the planet Earth and everyone in this room is going to live for an eternity somewhere. The question is just, where are you going to live? Where are you going to be spending eternity? And I believe if you would be honest and agree with this, that um, I'm the worst sinner I know. Right? I know the brokenness of my own heart. I know what I deserve, that I deserve ultimately the, the hell, the hell that God's going to, should give me. And I believe that's God being fair. Do you agree? Right? If God's going to be fair, that we would all receive hell? John Piper says this. He says, uh, the whore of hell is an echo of infinite worth of God's glory. And then in Matthew 25, verse 46, we see uh, this verse. It says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So everyone's living for an eternity somewhere. And C.S. Lewis unpacks it beautifully when he says this, one of the things that makes hell soul revolting is not only the pain of it, but the duration of it. That we're talking forever, right? Forever. And so Pastor Scott and I were talking this past week and he said this, he says that those who go to hell are getting everything they wanted, but that they can never enjoy. They wanted life without God and that's what they're receiving. And at this point, all the common grace that God gives to everyone on the planet is gone. So the fact that he meets your needs, the fact that you can breathe, that you have loved ones, that you have a job, that you have a roof over your head, that you have clothes to wear, this is all common grace that God can give to many people. But when eternity arrives, the common grace is gone. It's over. And so people then ask questions like this. Is it possible that all roads lead to heaven? See, Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus is saying he's it, right? So there's only one way to heaven. And so if there was other ways, that would mean that Jesus Christ is a liar. And if he's a liar, then he's a sinner. And that means his act of sacrifice on the cross for you is not good enough for you. People also say this about the death of Jesus, that wasn't that um, child abuse, I remember um, when I was serving at a church in Michigan, there was a church in our area that is now closed because they didn't stand for anything. In fact, they would talk about Jesus, they would talk about Buddha, that Hindu little worship temple inside their church. And the reality is when you stand for nothing, you're not going to be open too long. All right? But their pastor came out on Easter morning and preached this sermon, that when Jesus died on the cross, that is, God would never do that because that is child abuse. Listen, it's only child abuse if there's more than one way. You see, people ask this question as well. Uh, why is there a way at all? Or that's the question I would ask. Why is there a way at all, right? People ask the question, why, why is there uh, only one way? And I would say, why is there a way at all is really the answer. Or that's the question we should be asking. And in verse 10, it says this, in this the love in this, the love that not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, be the propitiation of our sin. You see, God's providing a different eternal outcome. He's removing hell and instead he's providing us with his son. And so we ask this question, how could God love me? And the reason we ask this question again is based off what we have or haven't done. And we come to the conclusion based off the fact that God knows everything, that we can never escape God, that there's no way he could ever love me. Well, please listen and don't ever, ever forget this, that God's love for you is not based off what you have or haven't done, but it is based off a decision and a choice that God made about you. 
See, that's the answer to the question. Right? Why does God love me in light of my brokenness? God's like, I know that you're broken, but I'm choosing to love you anyway. It's a decision that he's making, even though he has all knowledge and all understanding of how we've blown it. It's an amazing love, we could say. And so what is your, what is your response to this incredible love? In verse 11, we see this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's perfected in us. Listen, there's over 2 million people that live in the RDU area. And the question I'm thinking through is, how many of those people are becoming citizens of hell every single day? Every day, how many of those people are going to be wake up and spend life in hell? You see, we have a role to play that we can live our life through God. So what does that look like? I believe it's making the invisible attributes of God visible. So God extends to me his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his gentleness, his compassion. And then because I've received that as that sacrificial act, I'm taking those things. I'm going to live life in light of the act of Jesus. And so that means my neighbors, my coworkers, my family, they're all seeing this love, this sacrificial love that we can have for others because the greatest one demonstrated a sacrificial love for you. This is the mission. Connecting people to Jesus for life change. It motivates us. And I want to be honest. This is what's motivating Steph and I. Steph and I love it here at Southbridge. We've had an incredible experience. We love the people here. We love the mission here. We love serving on this team. But the fact that people are going to hell is what's motivating us to go and make much of Christ because of the sacrificial act that he has. And so we're moving home to plant Redemption Church where 66.9% of the people are either de-churched or unchurched people. In an area that I would drive 13 minutes to go to my church and I would pass 16 churches on one road. High church, quote unquote, but people are becoming citizens of hell daily there. And it's because, because of the reality of hell and because of, of the fact that Jesus changes everything that is motivating us to move home and plant this church because we believe that the love of God is greater. We believe that he is greater and that his love compels us to go. And so the greatness of God is magnified by the insignificance of those that he chose to rescue. And so the question is not this, does God love me? The question is, do you love God? That's the question. And how do you check that? You've got to look for evidences in your life. Are you seeing the love and mercy and compassion and grace, all those things being played out in your life with the people that you come in contact with? Are you taking the opportunities to redeem each moment of every day to make Jesus Christ known? You see, Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he also said this in the book of John, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I want you to know that God loves us on purpose so that we may go and live life in light of his love. And some of you need to embrace this message today. But you need to embrace the fact that you are a sinner. And if God reveals the truth of who you are without Jesus, it's not good. But because of the sacrificial act of Christ, you can not only gain eternity, but you can gain eternal value with your life left here on this earth right now. And so my prayer is for you that don't know Christ, that today's the day. 
that you embrace this incredible sacrificial love that God has for you so that you can come to know him and have your eternal outcome transformed. And as we close, John 15, 13 says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, Lord, and the awesome opportunity we have just to gather together as a body here at Southbridge. Lord, we, I love this place. I love this body. I love this mission. And this mission, Lord, is attractive because we've had front row seats that are watching you change lives. And so I pray that we as a body here at Southbridge will be um, a city on a hill that's shining a light so vertically that it's wherever we go as, as a body as a whole or as individuals that your love is made known, that you are clearly portrayed, that we redeem the moments we have every day to make you famous. And so we pray that you'll continue to work in our hearts and our lives. I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, I pray um, that you will penetrate their heart, Lord that they'll understand their need for a savior and that you, Lord, are the greatest one who's, a, who's demonstrated the greatest act and provided the greatest outcome. I pray that you will melt their heart of pride, Lord, and that you'll reveal to them the incredible need they have for you. And I pray for those of us who know you, Lord, that we will live life intentionally on purpose because that is what God has loved us to do. He has given us purpose. He has given us a mission. And so may we never forget that. And in your name, amen.